What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a professor of children's and adolescent literature at a university, I often tell students that the great thing about being an adult is that we can read anything. Preschoolers have a limited reading scope because of their developmental abilities, but as an adult, we have no such limitations, so why not enjoy everything? So it should make a lot of sense to you when I tell you that one of my favorite formats is the picture book. Too often, we think of picture books as only appropriate for younger readers who have yet to master the intricacies of the written word. While these books are certainly appropriate for the preschool or beginning reader, because the illustrations support their developmental needs, this does not mean that they are inappropriate for older readers. In fact, as we grow, we should include picture books as part of our ever-expanding scope of reading instead of excluding them. So today I'd like to share with you one picture book I love that is appropriate for all ages. It's called Kid Sheriff and the Terrible Toads by Bob Shea and illustrated by Lane Smith. As an adult, I enjoy this book because it uses wordplay and Western dialect to convey the story. I also appreciate how the text and the illustrations interact together and harken back to and punch some fun at the classic Westerns I watched and read as a child. Kids will revel in the kid sheriff's imperfect logic and cheer him on as he defeats the villains. For many, this book will be a perfect example of just how fun a great picture book can be for anyone at any age. And that's a recommendation for the whole family here at Rachel's World. Welcome to Worlds Awaiting. Today, Rachel talks to Scott Flocks, who has been teaching elementary school for 40 years. Flocks believes in bringing visual art, music, and drama daily into his classroom. He has observed that when you focus on the arts first, test scores go up and other things fall into place. Scott Flocks teaches third grade at Canyon Rim Academy in Salt Lake City, Utah. Here's Rachel and Scott. We're in studio today talking with Scott, who is a teacher in one of our local schools. Scott has been teaching for over 40 years and has a lot of real world experience uh, with this with all of the real things that go on in schools. And I'm excited to have him today to give us a really kind of raw, powerful view of what uh, of what he sees as the problems and the successes in schools. So welcome, Scott. We're glad to have you here today. So Scott, tell us a little bit about um, your experience with schools. You've had a lot of years in schools. And what do you see as particularly some of the problems with literacy that we're dealing with in our schools today? Um. Well, literacy, first of all, is life. And when you start making a disconnect between reading this book and not connecting it to life, you've already shut down the real reason that the book was written to begin with. So I've taught uh, younger grades, uh, first grade for 30 years, and then I've taught second and third the last 10, 10 of those years in uh, GT programs trying to make a conduit that connects the knowledge that I'm supposed to be teaching and the life that the kids are leading. 
Yeah, you mentioned GT programs. Those are gifted and talented right. programs yet. So explain a little bit what kinds of students are you seeing in these programs? What what kinds of students and what, what are the abilities? What are the skills they bring to your classroom to start out with? Well, believe it or not, the, the difference between what you would consider GT kids and regular ed kids is not nearly as broad as what you would think it would be. The difference would be that your high is probably higher and your low might be a little lower, actually, in a lot of ways, because a lot of GT kids have very specific information and skills rather than some of the broader base things you see in regular ed. Yeah, that's really interesting to me because I've, I've worked with gifted and talented kids before as well, and they do have these really high highs, but there's a lot of these really low lows. I've worked with one uh, young man who was brilliant in math, but he was so low in literacy. He was actually four or five grades almost below in some of his literacy skills because he had this really huge gap. So sometimes I think there's this interesting dichotomy that we have to approach that even though they're gifted, they may not be gifted in all areas. So how do we reach those kinds of kids? How do we reach them fundamentally to tap into the, some of those talents and give them strengths in other areas? Um, I think you do that through the arts and schools, you know, and indicating that there are problems to begin with and, uh, and acting like uh, there are issues that have to be dealt with instead of just academic ones. So what are those non-academic issues you think we have to deal um, with? I found visual arts, music, um, theater, dancing, those are the kinds of activities that raise academic standards for everybody that can be uh, integrated into academic subjects, maybe in a more passive way, but it kind of equalizes the playing field for everybody. Um, a child that may not be reading at the highest level may have some visual art uh, attributes that they can use in showing what they know that some other kid reading at a higher level don't have. So it kind of really equalizes a playing field. That's a really interesting way to look at music it. Music yeah. the same way. I've seen you know music being used that same way. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. And I know particularly in your classes with your students, you integrate the arts and literacy in a really unique way. So can you just explain to us briefly about how you use art to help build literacy skills? Yeah, I, I found it. I'm a musician and a visual artist, too, Um I had problems in school. I was late developing, so I had to develop basically my own way of, of teaching myself. And I taught myself through visual arts and music, and I've kind of integrated those philosophies into what, how I teach now. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know we've talked before, and I think both of us agree that the current focus on testing is just really misguided in our in our views and misguided in a lot of people's views and they think oh we need to focus on the test so we can raise the test scores but one of the things you've found in your classes is that this focus on the arts actually raises the test scores can you tell us a little bit more about that right i use brain development um, and very systematic visual arts so when you talk about the common core and making connections if you can make connections in visual arts and music and theater, those uh, absolutely will show up in their test scores. My test scores are really high, but I don't teach kids to do well on a test. My kids do well on a test 
because the things we do in school every day are harder than what the test uh, tests the kids on. That's every a, day. That's a great way to put it because if you do the hard work, it actually manifests in in other ways. And I think you bring a really unique perspective to this, not only your personal background, but also your experience after 40 years of teaching, and then also being a male teacher, which tends to be a rarity in our schools. So looking at kind of this whole experience, what what do you think is one of the fundamental things we need to remember about schooling or about literacy to help us just really empower our kids to, to be better people? I think you have to take the testing out of the equation and focus on brain development and teaching kids how to learn. And then the testing results are byproduct of what you're teaching their brain to do. I use visual arts as my means to teach them how to learn. I teach um, my reading not through basal readers but through novels. And then I use analogies in my reading groups every day. Then I use, break it down into phonetic components, more of the traditional things. But I teach the brain to think holistically first. That's really an interesting approach. One of the things I I love about the arts is they aren't immediate. We can't ever have this immediacy. You have to practice. You have to continue. And you have to grow. And even if you are really good at what you do, there's always growth potential. And I think sometimes, particularly with some of the more core knowledge things like reading and writing, we think, oh, once you've learned it, you've learned it, instead of this kind of growth pattern. So I think that's an interesting corollary that the arts bring to this reading and writing um, philosophy with literacy. Do you, do you find that to be the sense as well, this deepness that the arts bring to other oh, literacies? Oh, yeah. Learning is a continuum. You know, we have, I have a couple of phrases in my room that I learn all, that we use all the time. There are no answers, there are only questions. Important, yes. And um, the question is the important thing because the answers change. Um, something else we talk about is human nature, all the books, the stories that we use. I use Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little and Trumpet of the Swan and BFG. I'm working on Wrinkle in Time right now, and a couple other books where it's about the human condition, and we talk about how the human condition uh, manifests itself in everything people do, which is, to me, the connection between what knowledge is and what life is. I really like that connection because there really is the human condition that we need to study and look at. So in our closing minutes here, Scott, what is the main question that you think we still need to answer about literacy or education that that we as teachers or parents haven't quite gotten the answer yet? I think we have to decide whether we're teaching kids to be successful on a test or for teaching kids for knowledge that should manifest itself on a test. That's a great way to put it. And if we decide that, the test will take care of itself. My kids do great on the testing, and everybody's amazed. It puts a lot of pressure on other people at my school because my test results are so high, and I don't do a lot of pre- and practice tests. They're, they do well in the test because what we do in school every day 
it's much harder than what they're ever going to be asked for on a test. But because it's done in an artistic, creative way, the kids want to do it, and they want more. And that should be the purpose of all education, to want more. (laughs) And what they create is so incredible that it feeds on itself. They exceed their expectations every day. So I don't have intrinsic things I have to do to motivate them. Their motivation is intrinsic because they just want to do better. Yeah. And isn't that what we want for all of our children? Exceeding their their, their expectations, expectations and, and being intrinsically motivated. Thanks so much, Scott, for visiting with us today and providing your unique insight. That was Rachel Wadham with Scott Flocks, a veteran elementary school teacher, discussing the importance of the arts in the classroom. Now we'll meet an author whose love of fairy tales led her to a genre of writing that has attracted many young readers. Jessica Day George is a best-selling author of children's books, including the Dragon Slipper series, Castle Glower series, and Silver in the Blood. She talks about one of her books, Sun and Moon, Ice and Snow, a retelling of the Norwegian fairy tale, East of the Sun and West of the Moon. Here's Jessica Day George and World's Awaiting host, Rachel Wadham. Welcome to the show today, Jessica. Thank you. You know, one of the things that you're known for is your retold fairy tales. Yes. I know my personal favorite, of course, is, is Sun and Moon, Ice and Snow, Yay. based on the fairy tale <laughs> East of the Sun, West of the Moon. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that book for people who may not have heard of it before? Yes, I'm always shocked because, you know, when you grew up with a thing, like I just sort of grew up with that story yeah. and I don't even remember... It must have just been in some random collection of fairy tales. And it's not a Grimm's fairy tale, so just be, I don't know, the Random House Big Book of Fairy Tales or something. But I grew up with that story of... It's a the it's a Norwegian story, and the woodcutter's youngest daughter, one day a polar bear knocks on the door of their house and says, if you give me your youngest daughter, I will make you fabulously wealthy. And she only has to live with me for a year. And the parents go, okay. Okay, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we'll already we have so many questions, yeah, like how like... did they know what the polar bear wanted, and who <laughs> yeah. does that to their kid? <laughs> yeah. You know, so... So, um, you know, she goes, lives with this polar bear. And then it's sort of a combination of Beauty and the Beast and Cupid and Psyche, the Greek myth Cupid and Psyche. She has to live with them for a year. But there is a man that gets into her bed every night, but she can never have a light at night. And so she finally steals a candle and peeps. And there's this handsome prince sleeping next to her. And she drips candle wax on him. And he wakes up and has to go to the palace east of the sun, west of the moon, to marry the queen of the trolls because he could not get a faithful human maiden to love him, basically, like as a polar bear. So um, I just always loved that story. And then when I was a teenager, though, a version came out that was illustrated by P.J. Lynch, and he did this beautiful version, and the girl looked like me. She had she does. I she had that long connection, but she red does. hair. Yep, she had long <laughs> red hair, and um, she looked like me. And I thought, reading it, though, I kept thinking, like, this story, if you think about it, is very deeply weird. You know, mm-hmm. the whole, like, the polar bear knocks on the door and says, and I'm like, how did they know? And the parents go, sure, yeah, take her. And then the parents encourage her to break the rules. The mom is the one that wants her to peek. At the, you know, and I'm like, all your gold is going to go away if she does this. Yeah. We all know it's coming, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I thought, what, you know, then when I read... um Ella Enchanted and stuff and, you know, saw how people could, like, yeah. build a fairy tale into a longer book. I'm like, no one is going to do that story. Nobody yeah. knows that story. I want to do that story. And um, 
I did not read Ella Enchanted until much later because I was I am old. But I actually have notes from like when I was a teenager, uh, like when I was in college, about how I was going to make this my own version. Yeah. And then once I, I I was at BYU and I studied fairy tales a lot and, and Norwegian and German fairy tales, and I noticed something about the Norwegian fairy tales is very often the people have names. Yeah. Because a lot of the Norwegian folk tales are very Christian. You know, the trolls will only get you if you are not a baptized Christian. Yeah. And so in every version of East of the Sun, West of the Moon, she's only called the girl or the youngest daughter. Yeah. And in other stories, they have names. They have like a standard name for the guys, which I used in my book, like the youngest son that has magic things happen to him is always called Askeladden. And it's kind of like a Cinderella, but it's his name. Yeah. And so there's, you know, or Axel, which is kind of a version of Askeladden. There are names for the people in their fairy tales, like yeah. well-used names, but there's no name for this girl, which means she was not baptized, which means the trolls could get her. So I wanted to do this story, like this traditional story, and it would start kind of in the traditional, you know, the traditional way it starts with, you know, long ago and far away type of beginning. And it, I was actually going to end it with snip, snap, snout. Now my tail is out. And my editor's like, no, no, <laughs> that, that's a, a little, little too, too much. weird. That's <laughs> a little too much. But I tried to make it like very traditional. You know, there are three old ladies and she is there for three nights and like because they always have the three things because one time could be an accident when something happens to you twice could be coincidence but three times means there's magic afoot yeah. you know so so she meets three helpful old ladies they give her three gifts she's there for three nights like I I, I hit all the notes of like a proper yeah. Norwegian fairy tale but then there's like solid grounding and this is what it would be like to live on a farm you know this is what happens this is the what happens to you if you're not a baptized Christian in troll country you know yeah. and things like yeah. that and just really just poured all of my love for Norway and, and fairy tales and stuff into this book. And it's my pride and joy. And How everyone I talk to that's read yeah. all my books, they go, oh, but my favorite, favorite is Sun. <laughs> so that's why we did the new cover and I was very pleased. Yes. Yeah. I liked the original cover just fine. I really yeah. did like it. The, it's a close up of a girl's face. She's got a fur hood, you know, and stuff. It's very, it's very, um, very lovely cover, yeah. but it just was not striking because it's very washed out. Exactly. And the, the spine of the book was blue on blue, like yeah. pale blue on blue. And you could not read the title from a couple yeah. feet away. And so uh, a couple of years ago, uh, they said, why don't we have the guy, Larry Rostent, who does the photo covers for your other princess books. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's him. Yeah. Recover this book. And so then all your fairy tales will have the same look. Yeah. And I'm like, that is great. And I love Larry Rostent. And he is he just. He does such amazing photos. <laughs> his emails are just awesome because yeah. he'll go like, I have found her ball gown. You know, I'll just get this email <laughs> from him that that's all it will say. Because like, Enticing. you know, princess of glass. I like, I'm like, okay, well, she goes to the ball three nights. So these are the three different gowns that she would have if you know if you could please get at least one of the colors and I described the one pink gown and he I get this email back like five minutes later I have found that ball gown I love it and he's like it is identical to the one described in the book and I did not change it later he found the that actual gown for the Cinderella but but so he he emails me and he's like I have that fur coat and I'm like wait <laughs> wait, wait a minute because <laughs> in, in the story she takes her brother's coat which is made out of white polar bear fur and is embroidered with a spell yeah. and he found something which actually may have originally been a bathrobe who knows but, but it, it he works. found this sort of long fur coat that has red embroidery along the cuffs and the collar and he found a blonde Scandinavian That's looking model and draped her in this enormous, enormous and it's way too big for her yeah. like it's supposed to be draped her in this enormous coat takes her picture and I was thrilled I was like yes Larry you're my hero 
That's so cool. Yeah, I do. I do like the second cover very much. Yes, and, and there, but there are people that are passionate. Yeah, there are people yeah. that are pa- they passionately like, do not like that new cover, oh. or they or they passionately hated the old cover. And what is wrong with that cover? And they love the new one. So it's just funny. <laughs> That's like, funny. Because I like them both, but I yeah. do love that you can see the coat. You know. Yeah, you know, I think I think for me, one of the reasons I love it is because kind of the fear appeal of fairy tales is that kind of immense imagination and the thought of going to a ball in that kind of amazing dress that's on like on the covers of yes. your princess series is just kind of epitomizes yes. fairy tales for me yes and and every little girl wants to wear that dress yes you know and oh, see gosh. that kind princess of thing. The midnight ball because yeah. i had no idea because in in my head the so my other books my uh, 12 dancing princesses stories i was sort of imagining almost like it's regency england but yeah. they're they're in sort of a a pseudo german country yeah. But so I was imagining, you know, the sort of the high-waisted, a little bit simpler yeah, gowns. Yeah. But I wasn't too super detailed about it because it just, it doesn't matter. The yeah. knitting is what matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The knitting is what's important it's in those books. It's the knitted garters that they're wearing that <laughs> that's really the, matter. That's the important part. And so he sends me this cover and he, you know, it was the first time I had had worked with him. And he's like, he's like, they said that you didn't care what color her gown was. And I found this really stunning one. And he sends me the picture of this model in this gown. And I about died because that ivory gown totally embroidered with like pink and green and stuff is so magnificent but the thing that I love is that he goes and finds models that exactly match my girls yeah because he asked me you know what do you want her to look like and I described the girl and said and you know whatever gown she's got a red dress later but I don't know that may seem too deluxe or you know something like that there's there were a lot of red dresses at the time and and uh on covers and he goes oh I've got something for her to wear but but he finds the models that look like that and that's so that is so neat fun because you can see that picture you have that visual in your mind and it's not blown when you read the book yeah. you know it really draws you in and, and draws you into that fantasy that you know is yep. that depth of that fairy tale what is it in general about fairy tales that just kind of attracts you why why lengthen them why tell more than is originally written they're basically the outline of a longer story and it's it's so fun for me to write them because here's like your basic story 12 dancing princesses you know the basics 12 girls they dance all night till their shoes wear out you know and then you know someone helps solve their mystery kind of thing and so you've got the bare bones so then you can do whatever you want with it it was a Grimm's fairy tale so I said it in a country that's like Germany and you know I've been to Germany a couple of times and speak German and and so I was like I'm gonna do like a sort of a German feel like a Grimm's fairy tale type of feel to it and um and then you see things like there'll be one version in one version he's their gardener and in one version he's a soldier that just walks in off the street to solve the mystery of the worn out dancing shoes and I'm like what if he was an ex-soldier that gets a job as a gardener but then also at the time they did in fact teach the soldiers to knit they were supposed to knit their own socks and gloves and stuff so they could make them to size they would just send them yarn and they would knit their own stuff you know he's supposed to take a twig off the silver tree as proof of where he's been well he whittles it into a knitting needle and knits them something with it and then it has magical properties and you can add all that none of that's in the story you can put whatever you want with it because you've but you've got your basic outline you need you need your 12 princesses you need your guy that's some kind of working man you know not a prince and you need your shoes to wear out all night but where you know how it's happening why it's happening is all there for you and 
you know, my the second one, Princess of Glass, was a was a Cinderella story, which I mean, there's been a million, a million, yeah. a million, a million. And, yeah. and then I did Little Red Riding Hood because, again, like there's something weird going on yeah. there. But you have the basic story. Everyone knows it. You don't have to spend a ton of time explaining. Yeah. You know, you can just say this girl in her new red cloak is going through the forest. And you're like, ah, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. <laughs> but so then it's fun to see and it's a surprise where else it there. goes. Yeah. Then it's fun to see yeah. what else is added in yeah. my Little Red Riding Hood, the wolves are guys who wear wolf masks yeah. when they rub and it's a little bit of a Robin Hood story as well yeah. so you can do what you want with it but people recognize some of it yeah. so it's both comforting and exciting I yeah think. well and when when you did your little Red Riding Hood one I I thought that was one of the best things because there are a couple fairy tales that I think are really hard to retell and Little Red Riding Hood and Puss in Boots are the two that I think are the hardest to retell yes. and you did an extraordinary job thank you doing that so you picked the hard ones <laughs> it's a good thing <laughs> thanks so much Jessica thank for you. visiting with us today <laughs> our program concludes today with Clara Goodwin of our World's Awaiting Team visiting with some children at Canyon Crest Elementary School in Provo, Utah about why they think reading is fun. Why do you think reading is fun? When I read a lot, I kind of get into the book and I forget the world around me. It kind of takes you on an adventure and, and takes you out of like a real, like your real world situations. It's something that can keep you up at night. It can have an impression on your life, or it can give you an, give you an excuse to get away from your brother. Why has reading made a difference in your life? I think it really helps because sometimes there's just this really good character that I look up to and I look at the attributes that they have and I think, I want to be like that person, they're so cool. Why do you think it's important to start reading when you're young and in school? It's easier when you start young because you can start with like books that aren't like have as big as words and then you can go on to um, bigger books and also it can help you with like other things like writing or like spelling because you can see the words a lot in books that will help you. It like introduces you to the whole world of books and to so many things and when you're a little kid you have such a great imagination so hearing about all these stories just makes you wish you were one of those people and it's just a great thing. It helps with lots of vocabulary and spelling and things like that. If you start young you will progressively get better and better so you can start reading like harder books than where you started from. What would you maybe say to a friend who doesn't like reading very much? I would tell them to pick up a book and read until they think that reading is good or they can never live. I'd recommend a book or a series that has a lot of excitement because once you're in the book, I think uh, exciting books help you get into the book a little more. I actually know two people who don't like to read, my brother and my cousin. Uh, my cousin is almost 12, so I told him that if he doesn't start to like reading soon, then he's gonna have a really hard time in middle school. What is the best part about reading a good book? I think it's just learning, and it's hearing what's being said, and how it makes you feel included, because if I'm having like a hard time at school or something, I just can't wait to get home because whenever I have a good book, I feel like that world was 
just meant for me. If you don't like a book very much, how can you make reading a better activity? Sometimes if you find a book that you don't like, it's probably because it's not meant for your age group, so you can like try it in a few years. Sometimes when you're reading a book, you make it to a super boring part and you just think, oh, this book is going to be so horrible. I mean, nothing good is going to happen. But if you just read through it and get past it, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a great ending. More good things are going to happen in the book. Well, if you don't like the book, then it's probably just like not for you and you should just read a different book until you find the right one and if, if you can't find a good one then just find like a book that you read in your childhood that you really liked even if it's like one that your little brother or sister would be reading it could help you like reading more and so you could understand more and like like the book more that you had trouble reading. Clara Goodwin of our World's Awaiting Team talking with some children at Canyon Crest Elementary about how reading has made a difference in their life. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.